Hey everyone, it's Patrick Gray here. As most of you know, Catalan Kimpanu joined the team here at Risky Biz HQ about a month ago, and uh, yeah, he is well and truly up and running. He is publishing a newsletter for us three times a week containing all the latest cybersecurity news, and he also publishes a podcast version of that newsletter, uh, which is pushed into its own RSS feed uh, three times a week. So here is the latest edition of that podcast, and I'm just throwing uh, a copy into the main feed so you can all get a chance to hear what it's all about. If you want to subscribe to Catalan's podcast, just search for Risky Business News in your preferred podcasting software or head to risky.biz slash subscribe uh, for the RSS link. I hope you enjoy this. This is Risky Business News, a podcast with daily cybersecurity news read and prepared by Catalin Campano. Today's podcast is brought to you by Proofpoint and we'll be hearing later from Cheryl de Grippo about recent developments in the email security landscape. We start today's show with some news from threat intelligence firm Nisos, which published on Thursday a report about a tool called Fronton. Details and documents about this tool were initially leaked online in March 2020 by a hacktivist group calling itself Digital Revolution. The group claimed it obtained the documents from a Russian IT company that was subcontracted by the FSB to build offensive hacking tools. An initial analysis of the leaked documents suggested that Fronton was a tool to build IoT botnets that could be used for DDoS attacks. But in a report published on Thursday, Nisos said that a day after the initial leak, the Digital Revolution Group released additional documents about Fronton that went under the radar all this time. Analysis of these files revealed that the Fronton project also contained a component that could function as a platform for social media disinformation campaigns. Called SANA, this system included a web-based dashboard where operators could schedule mass postings to social media platforms. Nisos said that after scanning the internet, it was able to find at least one instance of this tool deployed in the wild, but it couldn't determine if it was a test server or an instance used for actual disinformation campaigns. Nevertheless, Even if you don't know if Russia is relying on Fronton for its disinformation operations, we do know that Russia is behind several of these campaigns. On Thursday, Mandiant published a report summarizing some of these campaigns after the country's invasion of Ukraine. Risky Business News invited Sam Riddle, a threat analyst for Mandiant's Information Operations Division, to go through the report and summarize some of their findings. This week, Mannion published a report detailing notable information operations activity that we've observed surrounding the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Many of the information operations were augmented by traditional cyber threat activity. In other instances, we observed destructive attacks occur concurrently with information operations. We note that likely Russian-sponsored disruptive and destructive attacks targeting Ukrainian entities took place concurrently with observed I.O. activity on at least three occasions between January and mid-March, possibly suggesting a link between the activity sets. Ukrainian entities have also been targeted with pro-Russian defacements, DDoS attacks, and hack and leak campaigns in 2022. One of our findings showed that in March, a pro-Russian actor compromised a Ukrainian news entity and published a deepfake video to the agency's website that purported to show President Zelensky stating that Ukraine had decided to surrender. Quote, hacktivists with stated aims of supporting Russia in the war have also been busy launching DDoS attacks and publishing Ukrainian government documents, among other actions. We also saw new activity from some well-known I.O. campaigns, including the pro-Russian secondary infection campaign. One such secondary infection operation likely sought to demoralize the Ukrainian public by falsely claiming that President Zelensky had committed suicide in a military bunker. 
We also revealed that Ghostwriter, another well-known campaign, which we have attributed at least in part to Belarus, compromised several social media accounts and a website to promote a conspiracy that a Polish organ harvesting ring was kidnapping Ukrainian refugees. Our full report provides further detail on IO activity from Russian intelligence-linked news outlets, possible GRU-operated telegram channels, an entity that has been publicly reported to have ties to the infamous Russian Internet Research Agency, and more. But pro-Russian actors aren't the only ones attempting to manipulate perceptions of the war. In addition to the pro-Russian activity, we've also been tracking IO originating from pro-Iranian and pro-Chinese actors. In both instances, these actors appeal to prioritize opportunistically repurposing narratives related to Ukraine towards their own ends. A pro-PRC influence campaign known as Dragon Bridge, for example, has echoed narratives promoted by Russian state media in English and Chinese, mainly through the lens of attempting to diminish the U.S.'s global standing. Continued messaging about the alleged existence of Pentagon-linked biolaboratories in Ukraine is just one example of this. On the Iranian front, we revealed that pro-Iran content related to the invasion is being pushed by campaigns we track as Liberty Front Press and Roaming Mayfly, respectively. While these narratives played off of events in Ukraine, the content remained consistent with the anti-Saudi, anti-US, and anti-Israeli objectives we've observed from these campaigns in the past. We will continue to track I.O. surrounding this conflict, which will likely persist long after the war ends. And since we are on the topic of foreign disinformation efforts, Less than a month after establishing its disinformation government's board, the DHS had to pause its effort. The Washington Post reported that the agency was at the center of several disinformation efforts led by right-wing groups. The backlash focused on accusations that the U.S. government was trying to control free speech, but DHS officials said this was never the agency's true purpose, which would have been focused on foreign disinformation operations. But now from bad news to good news, as the U.S. Department of Justice also announced on Thursday a revision to how it prosecutes violations to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, also known as the CFAA. Going forward, the DOG said that it would not charge individuals who commit CFAA violations while conducting good-faith security research. This policy shift comes after years of lobbying from the cybersecurity industry. Also in DOJ news, the department announced on Thursday that it recovered more than 50 million US dollars from the Swiss bank accounts of the Copter ad fraud operation, which it initially dismantled back in 2018. Also in US government news, the FTC announced on Thursday its intention to crack down on companies that collect the personal details of children via online learning platforms. In cyber insurance news, we have two interesting reports this week from CyberScoop and the Wall Street Journal. For example, the CyberScoop is reporting that a growing number of of US-based water companies are finding it harder to get cyber insurance due to the larger number of attacks targeting their industry and their poor cybersecurity practices. On the other hand, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that many cyber insurance providers have raised their rates throughout 2021, after a series of high-profile cybersecurity incidents, and especially after the May 2021 Colonial Pipeline hack. Moving on to news of hacks and breaches, the Greenland government said this week that a cyber attack that took place on May 9 crippled the activity of its national health service. Government officials told local media that they are in the process of restoring the agency's IT systems, but since the attack, Doctors haven't been able to access patient medical records and citizens haven't been able to contact the agency via email. The incident looks like ransomware but officials haven't confirmed it yet. On the other hand, the Singapore division of the Nikkei media conglomerate was hit by ransomware on Thursday, the agency said in a press release. 
In other international cybersecurity news, the Indian government also said this week that it wouldn't back down on a new requirement that would force VPNs and cloud providers to collect the personal information of their users. This requirement was part of a new cybersecurity law that the Indian government passed earlier this month. The law saw significant backlash with some providers threatening to pull out of India. Moving on to the section of our show dedicated to news from the cybercrime and threat intelligence communities, we also learned on Thursday that the Conti ransomware gang is apparently preparing to shut down operations and rebrand into smaller groups. Threat intelligence company Advanced Intelligence first reported on the news, which was later confirmed to Risk Business News by two different threat intelligence analysts. Conti's decision to rebrand comes after the group suffered several security breaches and information from its internal network, such as offensive playbooks and, and internal chats, were leaked online late last year and earlier this year. Another good news from the ransomware ecosystem is that the Darkfeed ransomware monitoring project has announced plans to return in a new format. The project was forced to close down earlier this month after its creator was harassed by a ransomware operator. As for the bad news from the ransomware ecosystem, Taiwanese IoT maker QNAP published a security alert on Thursday warning of new attacks against its network-attached storage devices using the Deadbolt ransomware. The company said that this new wave of attacks targeted NAS devices using the QTS firmware and the affected models were the TSX51 and the TSX53 series. We also had a report on Thursday about a novel phishing attack detected by security firm Trustwave. The company said that it discovered a phishing campaign that used automated chatbots to trick users into entering their personal and financial details in chat windows. Previous phishing campaign that relied on chat windows to collect data from victims usually employed a threat actor on the other side of the chat asking users questions in real time. This marked the first time that an automated chatbot was seen employed in the attack. Also on the same day, the Google Tag security team published its own report linking five zero-day vulnerabilities it saw exploited last year to Cytrax, a spyware company based in North Macedonia. Four of the zero-days were used to hack Google Chrome browsers, while a fifth was used to hack the Android operating system. And since we're on the topic of advanced threat actors, this week a team of Italian academics have also published a research paper that analyzed data from 86 APTs and 350 campaigns carried out between 2008 and 2020. The paper found that APT groups heavily rely on publicly disclosed vulnerabilities to breach their victims rather than zero days. We invited Daniel Gordon, an independent security researcher, to provide his feedback on the paper. This is a fantastic piece of analysis from three researchers at the University of Trento in Italy. They collected blogs on APT compromises and compared it to software patch update releases to identify instances where organizations were exploited before or after a patch was released. The researchers found that most APT campaigns use end days, which is notable because zero days get so much more attention. I could nitpick a bunch of things about the study because of data collection bias from what gets detected and attributed like resources for incident response, where the incident response is able to identify initial entry vectors or privilege escalation exploits, as well as who tends to publish blogs and the biases of those publishers. I could also nitpick problems resulting from different community definitions of APTs, particularly whether groups like Carbonac, Orphan7, or unsophisticated state-sponsored activity counts as APT activity. 
Regardless, I agree with their conclusions that end-day exploits are way more common, way easier to mitigate, and should be way more of a focus for defenders as a result. Moving on to other APT news, we also had, towards the end of the week, several reports published about new APT campaigns. The first is from Checkpoint, which published a report on a threat actor it calls Twisted Panda that the company says has recently targeted Russian state-owned defense institutes. Russian security firm Positive Technologies has also published a report on an APT group it calls Space Pirates that has been recently targeting Russian companies from the aerospace field. In addition, South Korean security firm Anlab published a report about recent attacks from the Lazarus APT where they used the log4shell vulnerability for initial access into target networks. While not related to any APT activity, Sentinel-1 also published an interesting report on Thursday. The company said that it detected a campaign targeting Rust developers using a malicious library disguised as a popular Rust package. Sentinel-1 said this package contained malicious code that would look for a local GitLab CI build server installed on the developer's machine. If found, it would download a Go-based backdoor to be used for future attacks. Sentinel-1 researchers said they suspect this threat actor was compromising systems in preparation for future supply chain attacks against software makers. And last but not least, CISA has issued a rare emergency directive ordering federal agencies to patch a set of VMR vulnerabilities disclosed last month that are currently actively exploited in the wild. In addition, CISA has also ordered federal agencies to patch two other VMware vulnerabilities disclosed on Wednesday and which the agency believed and expected that threat actors will also weaponize in the future. This concludes our news section. Now we'll hear from our sponsor. We have Shara DeGrippo, Proofpoint's Vice President of Threat Research and Detection, who will be sharing some insights into recent email phishing campaigns focusing on cryptocurrency users. Something that I don't quite have my full understanding of yet, and that is what's going on with cryptocurrency. It's crashing very hard, I've heard. Um, But for the past month or so, we've seen a lot of movement around Credfish and information stealers that deal with the large exchanges, cryptocurrency forums, wallet information stealing, and things like that. So we've seen that as recently as two days ago, campaigns that go after things like reset your password URLs on the exchanges and things that are saying that there's been a new user agreement to accept for their users. We've seen a ton of this for the past couple of months, but it looks like they're ratcheting it up now that there is a lot of movement in the cryptocurrency valuations. The threat actors know that's something that people are interested in, and so they're leveraging it in social engineering for campaigns trying to steal information and uh, cryptocurrency itself. This is it for today's news. You can find links to all reports in our newsletter at riskybiznews.substack.com or on our website at risky.biz. 